Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is mixing and mastering engineer Ryan Schwab. First of all, streaming may make record labels irrelevant. It wasn't that long ago that a hit in the U.S. would be heard worldwide. I can remember walking down the streets of Paris or Singapore or Berlin and hearing the latest U.S. hits pour from the shops on the streets. No more. Streaming has actually brought local music together. In several countries, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, and Poland, among others, the top 10 songs of 2022 in each country were almost entirely from local domestic artists. The same is true across Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Most artists in other countries now spend less time listening to Western English-speaking artists that have dominated their airwaves for decades. With that in mind, one of the only things that a record label can offer an artist is the reach across the planet, but now that's less and less likely to occur. So the question is, what can they add to an artist's career that they can't already get by having a good manager and team? Increasingly, labels are relying more on catalog instead of new releases because they see the writing on the wall. Most of their revenue flows from catalog, and new hits stay on the charts a lot longer than they used to. That's because new artists aren't being developed, and probably won't be if this trend continues. We may be seeing the long, slow demise of the major record label happening right before our eyes. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Now here's some news that just came out today. Reuters reported that Avid Technology, the maker of Pro Tools, is exploring a sale. The company is said to be working with Goldman Sachs to find a buyer. Avid's largest shareholder is a hedge fund called Impactive Capital LP, and Avid is the only entertainment media company in its portfolio. That's an incentive to lead the charge to sell. Avid was founded in 1997 and is currently worth over a billion dollars. It's profitable, too. In the first quarter, its recurring revenue grew by 8%, and its active paid software subscriptions by 22%. Despite that, shares have dropped 22% this year because it missed analyst projections, which is always crazy to me because if an analyst projects it should be 10% and they only committed 8% profitability, then their stock goes down. doesn't make much sense. With that said, Avid stock jumped by 18% when the story came out. There's some speculation that Apple might be a suitor, but that's probably not the case, as it already has Final Cut and Logic Pro, both of which have much larger market shares than either Avid's Media Composer or Pro Tools. It's an attractive company for someone to acquire, though, so it should be interesting to see what happens going forward. My guest this week is Ryan Schwab, who's a two-time Grammy-nominated, platinum-certified mixer and mastering engineer. In 2022, he was nominated for a Grammy for Best Dance Electronic Album for Bowers' Planet Mad, and in 2023, he was nominated for Best Sound Engineered Album, Non-Classical, 
for Mixing and Mastering Banks Adolescence. Ryan is a former professor of recording arts and music production at Drexel University's Music Industry Program. He's also owner of the music production and engineering company Acoustic Sound, the music technology company Schwab Digital, and co-owner of the digital record label Rare MP3s. Ryan's also the developer of the new Gold Clip Mixing and Mastering plugin. During the interview, we spoke about learning the art of mastering, his philosophy on mixing, not being tied to certain mixing techniques, developing his own plugin, and much more. I spoke with Ryan via Zoom from a studio in Philadelphia. Let's talk about your background and how you actually got into music and then got from Buffalo to Philly. I mean, you know, my interest in music started, um, you know, like a lot of other people. I think I just like listening to music. I, I remember being a kid and going to a, a secondhand shop and getting like a Lou Rawls record. And um, I saw on the back it was recorded at Sigma Sound Studios in Philly. And that was like my first fascination with recorded music. I just remember hearing the strings in it and being really fascinated by it. And eventually, unrelated to that, you know, came to Drexel for uh, in Philadelphia for music and what was called music and audio technology, which was pretty much like playing a big band, play music, traditional music education and electrical engineering education. So programming robots, computer structures and just more of a technical approach it was in electrical engineering school and it was unrelated to audio engineering or music really it was just kind of like these two things stuck together and eventually you know there was no studios there so i built some studios for the university as a student and then graduated at, uh, out of drexel and worked at studio crash in philly for a little bit um, and was you know producing local i was just like the house engineer so anybody that came through Everyone from John Stevens, who later became John Legend, to, you know, the local death metal band. <laughs> so everybody that came through the door, I worked on for about two years. And then um, Drexel started a music industry program. And they knew that as a student, I built some studios for the school. And so they asked me to come back and build studios and manage the recording studios in the music industry program. And uh, so it started off very small. And then that program grew exponentially over the past uh you know 15 years now 20 years now actually and eventually became a professor and all the while i was you know building studios and like learning about kind of what what goes into building like an ssl room or you know something like large format console integration i was making records on the side i was like producing records i was at first trying to be an artist and made a record called radio recession which did okay uh but after that record, everyone was asking me, you know, like, can you mix my record? Can you master my record? And so that kind of pushed me into the post-production world of record creation. And I got into just mixing people's records and just and doing a lot of mastering because it fit into my lifestyle as a professor and a employee at the university managing their studios because, you know, I couldn't commit to producing a record for three months straight. I could only like step in and mix singles or master albums and so i was kind of like running a little side business while i was teaching um just making records for people and worked on a lot of brilliant records um, and i was really fortunate music just kind of rushed at me um at my time well like during my time at drexel 
and my career just kind of took off and you know it's like a slow beginning of your career you know it's like very slow you're kind of like trying to piece things together and then years later all of those pieces are kind of rushing back at you and so i had a i was very fortunate to work on some records that started off as very you know just friends making records that turned out to be you know um culturally relevant or culturally significant and um those things just kind of lead back into your career and to the point where you know i always wanted to leave the university and just pursue music full time but teaching there's a certain joy to it and just being connected to young people that are like invigorated and so i i stuck with it for a lot longer than i anticipated and but just this past year i resigned from my teaching position uh, just to do music full time because last year i got nominated for best sound engineered album for the grammys which was like a major you know that's like the pinnacle of audio engineering accomplishments in my mind it's extremely difficult thing to attain because there's five six hundred submissions in that it's all genres of music and it was just like a very humbling experience and i was like if i don't stop and pursue music now when <laughs> right and yeah. so that's kind of been my trajectory through philadelphia it started off as just like you know going to school for electrical engineering and music to building studios to working in a local studio and then just kind of slowly building my career um behind the scenes as a as a professor at the university let's talk about mastering for a second i have a lot of mastering engineers that come on here and uh, i always ask them the same question how long did it take before you felt you were good at it? I was not good at it at the beginning, for sure. Mastering is such an interesting thing because it can be a lot. It can be a lot of work and detail and processing, and it can be very minimal as well, you know? And so it took me a while to learn that, to learn like when to do a lot and when to do a little. And I'd say, you know, when I started, I did too much. You know, I was always doing too much, trying to prove my worth or something. And I think it took me about seven or eight years before I was doing things that I was wholly proud of all the time, every single time. There's limitations in mastering, right? You're you're dealing with like just a stereo track 99% of the time. And so your impact can be mag you know can have a lot of magnitude your impact can be great but you're you're dealing with limited resources and so the the quality doesn't wholly rest on your shoulders and so you know acknowledging that as a mastering engineer and knowing the limits of what you can do is helpful and that's why a lot of times when i'm working you know people also know me as a mix engineer so they're actually sending me their music before we even master and like I'm oftentimes writing them, you know, notes and notes, like a page of of stuff like, you know, turn the snare up, turn the vocal down, blah, 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 you know, just like really simple um, mix operations. But um, that that makes ultimately for a much better master, I find. Yeah, I think um, that's the one thing that people don't understand about mastering is the fact that a lot of times mastering engineers will kick back the master and say, you know, if you made these changes, it would be a lot better make my job easier too. People just don't get that. Yeah. And a lot of times it's just kicking back saying like, fix the gain staging in your session. So you're not giving me a blown out mix to work with. I mean, that's the thing that I probably, you know, 20% of the, the things that I send back are just like, you know, let's, let's work on the gain stage in the session. So I'll use your loud blown out thing as a reference 
because that's what everyone's been listening to. But let me work from the unblown out source and then I can get there by more sophisticated means or more like complementary means to the production. When you finish a master, how concerned are you with the luffs level? I think that loudness can contribute to a certain level of intensity or containedness to a production. And so in some genres of music, demand it, right? If I'm doing an electronic record, some rock records, they kind of demand that intensity. And so, you know, and sometimes I'll, I'll be making stuff a little relatively loud. Um, rap music, modern, modern rap actually doesn't demand as much loudness because it's so deep, deep sub oriented that it just doesn't, it doesn't play well. So I am conscious of loops, but I'm more conscious of the overall arc of an album. And so if there's a ballad, if there's a single, like an aggressive single, like the over, maybe, you know, we could look at it mathematically, like what are the loops of all these things, but more it's like, you know, I like to needle drop through all the choruses of a record and say, okay, are all these comparable? Maybe should they be all even or should they not be even? Should some have a little bit more hype? Should some be a little bit more soft? So I can look at that from a numerical perspective with, with like a loose meter, but ultimately the last check is like, I don't even look at the loose anymore. I'm just like looking at um, them comparatively. So I may like kind of get an average loose for a record, um, one thing I'll do sometimes actually is in WaveBurner, there's a way to like batch process uh, files so that like they all have like an even short-term loops. So like the loudest section, the, like the chorus where it's, you know, the the biggest section of the song, it can kind of normalize them all. And so then I can basically start with an even uh, dynamic between all the records. And then I can say this one goes up, this one goes down. And, and then kind of create an arc to the album uh, from that. So I'll use I'll use that technology um, because, it, you know, it solves problems for me quickly and then lets me get to more creative decisions faster rather than solving technical issues. Yeah, now that's interesting because, again, when I talk to mastering engineers, they have the same opinion. It's like I, I use my ears. Yeah. I don't so much look yeah. at meters. But yet there's a preoccupation with levels and it's especially with people that don't have a huge amount of experience. It's like, oh, this is going to Spotify, so I have to have it at minus 14. It's like, no, because what's going to happen is they're going to re-encode it anyway. So, you know, don't even worry about it. Yeah, I, I always tell people that is a target playback volume. That is not a target master volume. Yeah, Those are two different things. That's That's what a playlist will play back as, but that's not what is appropriate for a production right? If it's a rock record and it's at negative 14 loops, it's going to sound like a little too loose and flappy and not like contained enough. Um, it may work, you know, for a classical record, sure, um, where you have these swells and these these gaps in, in energy in a, in a production. But if you have like something that's through composed, straight through, drums, bass, music, vocals, all the way through, there's a certain containedness that can, if you do loudness well, I think can like make something sound more exciting. Yeah, yeah, I get it. All right, you know, let's talk about studio design for a second. So you, you get into this building studios for Drexel then, and I take it you've done a lot more since then. You know, I I have not because it is such a big endeavor, which requires contracting and, and you know, like things that just my production schedule in making records was such a dominant uh, you know, my passion is in making music, not making studios. Um, I love studio design. I love like 
creating spaces that function really well for people. Like one of the things that I built at Drexel that was really successful is I built a studio. I just noticed that everyone was coming in with laptops. So I built a studio with no computer and I, I bought, I got like a driverless audio interface and then just wired up this beautiful studio with like synths and drum machines and audio, you know, like compressors and outboard gear, but it was all connected to an audio interface where people could just come in and bring their laptops. And so like, I enjoyed that aspect of it, like seeing what, how people like the chain, the way that people are making music differently nowadays and then building a studio around that. But going into the commercial world of building recording studios, I've been asked many times to do it. And I've always said no, because my heart is just in making music. Um, you know, my studio design in this room is quite sophisticated and I am always tinkering and, and like, um, you know, kind of elevating the way that everything is set up here. But from a commercial perspective, I always just say, you know, go to these people <laughs> and, and, and avoid it. I do the same thing. It's funny because yesterday I was actually tracking at a, a friend's place and he has a really nice studio in his house, but he decided that he wanted to get it out of his house. So he built a purpose building. And I mean, th this is built like Fort Knox. So he got the best architect he can find. He got the one of the best acousticians and a best contractor. And it turns out that they all made a mistake on the uh, air conditioning, on the HVAC. And it was the, the place where it was supposed to be, they actually calculated and, and it wouldn't, the, the compressor wouldn't fit. So he's been trying to get this fixed for over a year. And he can't get everybody in the same room or on Zoom at the same time to figure it out. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, I'm glad that's not me. <laughs> you know? Yeah, the systems integration of building a studio from the ground up is so intense and it requires so many specialties and so much coordination. And it, you know, you say that we'll get this done in a year and then it's three years later and there's still like little change orders and there's like details that are not fully implemented or they're not realized as they were on the drawing board and it's just a frustrating process because when you build a studio you're like i gotta do it right i gotta do it right and so you try to preempt all these things and ultimately it just becomes into this systems in integration complexity that is just it's difficult to complete and i just never wanted to go down that path you know um it was just not my space yeah i get it Let's talk about mixing for a little bit. How has your techniques changed over the years? How is it different from when you started the way it is now, the way you approach something? Well, the one thing I always think about is like when you're starting mixing, you're always working, you know, as a someone just entering the industry, you're working on records that need a lot of detailed, heavy-handed work to make them sound great. And then as you start to work on more professionally made records and you're just doing post-production mixing, you have to have a, almost a lighter touch and know when to dive in and do something heavy handed and when not to, or especially if you're working in electronic music where, you know, the producers are not tour, you know, they have a very specific sound. And so you can't, as a mix engineer, go in and stamp on top of that sound, your sound. And so you more work around the edges and do like what I call like secret decoration or in, in within their sonic aesthetic. And so my mixing has changed in a way that I'm much more discreet and intentful with my work where I will 
do things in a really precise way. Like I always have this like creative creativity kind of loop where I go through, like I try something, I test it against my uh, echoic memory. Like, is this the, is this the thing that was in my head? Does it pass, you know, what is like appropriate for this record? And then if it's a yes, I move forward. If it's a no, I delete it and go back. And so I always, when I teach my mixing class, you know, I'm always talking about like everything that you do has to be 100% definitively better. It has to be an improvement. You can't just be doing things to make it different. You have to actually be approaching it where everything that you do is increasing the uh, translation or intensity or quality or intention of the song, right? And so um, I'm much more intentful, I would say, with my mixing, where when I get to the end of a mix, I know that everything I did was like passed the test to me. And theoretically, people that's what people are coming to me for is like my my smell test on like what I'm going to do. And so, you know, I think I just became more intentful and that made me more confident uh, in my work where I know uh, when I send it back, people are going to be like, this is the same mix, but it's just way better. And I can't necessarily explain it, right? So yeah, I don't know. I think I've just become more discreet and more intentful in my mixing, which is a very abstract thing to say. It doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> well, no, I get it. There's actually two approaches. There's that approach where you just take it and make it better, make it sound better, yeah. whichever way it happens. The other way is you bring some new creative input where you'll do something where no one never, that at least the artist never thought of it. And it's sure. like, oh, th this effect really works here, and I never thought about adding it. When that happens, it's really interesting because for my mixing courses, for instance, I have a bunch of tracks that I, I give them. And sometimes the mixes I get back, I go, I never thought of that. That That is brilliant. Right, yeah. It's one of those things where it, it, you know, there's a certain amount of creativity, but does it fit or does it not? And that's the taste thing you're talking about. I think it, it, that comes down to genre sometimes. Like if I'm working in an electronically produced record, you know, I have to work within maybe like tighter um, bandwidth of, of like what I can do. And then it also then comes down to my relationship with that artist. Like, you know, I have that conversation with people before I get started on a mix. I say like, you know, is there anything sacred in this song? Like what is sacred? Like what should I leave as is and build around? And then if that, you know, if an artist is like, you know, do your thing, then I go and like push the bounds to some degree. But it's it's always a conversation that I have before I start on a mix because my goal is to like send version one and then be like, damn, it's done. Right. And so yeah. I want to figure out the latitude that I have with an artist before I get started. Do you have any favorite techniques that you seem to be coming back to most of your mixes? <laughs> Nah, I can't say that I do. I mean, I I guess recently I've really been loving using parallel distortion tracks uh, in mixes because it creates this like bed fuzz and hair and harmonics that things decay into. And it sounds very expensive and sounds very rich rather than just inserting um, compression on it and using a mix blend on it, but like actually having a parallel track where you're sending multiple things to it. And so then they distort, they distort collectively. And that creates a very unique and natural tonality to me because it's almost like overloading a console or overloading um, like a 
tape deck or a um, radio or something like that. Um, and so I'll use that quite a bit, you know, and I do the same thing. Like I have like a parallel mix bus that has like some uh, tape saturation on it. But really it all comes down to like really ex well executed EQ and compression, right? To make things, you know, I like to just make things sound expensive and like, so when you hear it, it's undeniably better. It's, and it's really just comes down to that simple salt and pepper, like compression and EQ. It's, it's, I wish I had like some cool secret sauce, but it really just comes down to compression, EQ, and an amazing listening environment that you trust. And that's it. Can't mix it if you can't hear it. Yeah. All right. So do you have favorite plugins that you tend to use all the time? I really love the Leap, Leapwing stuff. Leapwing has like DIN DIN one uh, multiband compressor that just sounds beautiful. And I made this preset that kind of like mimics the timings of the, I think it's the MLA four that may select uh, multiband compressor. I love that thing. They also have stage one widener, which is really beautiful and phase coherent. I love their plugins. You know the uh, three body EQ, which is the um, I think Plugin Alliance just took it over it's just a simple you know graphic e or not graphic EU parametric eq that sounds amazing and is just really a joy to use and you know i'm not super sacred about plugins like i remember you know the record that i got nominated for best sound engineering i opened up i did an interview with a radio station and i opened up one of the sessions and i looked at the <laughs> just to like talk about it and i looked at it and I was using this plugin throughout the whole session, almost on every track that I didn't even know now that I owned. I didn't even know that I had it. I was like, wow, this is a great plugin. So it, like, I almost, sometimes like I'll look for a compressor and I'll literally close my eyes and choose any compressor because I want to like have my ear dictate it rather than like, if I go back to the, the well with the, the same well, every time I, I kind of will start to do the same type of process or like approach and so oftentimes like my favorite tool is just a new tool and because it's forcing me to purely use my ears if i don't necessarily understand it or not not that i don't understand it but it's not like something that i've you know used hundreds of times um so i try not to play too many favorites um there's obviously the staples you know like the ren compressor or something like that um the our Vox on vocals is always nice. Uh, it's just like a really fast compressor. I, I use that quite a bit. But yeah, I try to just incorporate new things all the time and just keep me inspired. And that's like the best tool that I've found. Well, that's a good segue, I think, into uh, your new plugin. And yes. tell me about that and how it came about. Well, you know, like I said, I've been mastering records forever and I've always loved Lavery devices. And so on Lavery devices, the old Lavery Blues and the Lavery Golds and now the Lavery Savita, they have this process called soft saturation, which is this mathematical compression. Essentially, it's like the magnetization of tape. It doesn't have an attack and release, basically, because it's a converter. It knows that the loudest thing is going to be zero. And so it does these gain manipulations with like a, a knee curve that increases the loudness of things, but doesn't change the attack and release. It doesn't change the attack of the sound because there is no attack timing and no release timing. And so it's this 
basically has a way of like inflating sounds and like increasing the sustain of them in this really natural way. And because it's on a converter, you know, it's kind of fixed um, at a certain gain stage and you have to go up to zero to access the knee of it and, and kind of fully get the the quality of the compression out of it. And I was just like, I wish this was in a plugin where I could move the knee around to if it's like a 808 that's at negative 10 dBFS peaking, I could just move it to there and compress it there. And so I always wanted this thing. And I just two years ago, I just decided I'm going to bite the bullet and hire some developers and, you know, design this thing. So I like wrote up a white paper of how the math should work and how the signal flow should work. And I found some brilliant developers. I try to try to find the best person in the world um, that made um, DSP, hired them um, to develop the DSP. We went through the DSP for about, I guess about 10, 12 months. And then after that, once that was like approved, then we went into systems integration, which is like building the interface and, and connecting the DSP to all the buttons and everything and, you know, making it, giving user feedback. And it was a long journey. It was an extremely long journey. It was about two years. I never, I had no idea what I was doing. Obviously it was the first time stepping into building plugins, but I've been using it on all the records I've been mixing. It is fantastic. It's not out yet, but I've given it to like some of my colleagues and it's already on some really huge records. An Odessa record came out last week that is on the drums and I think the mix. It's So people that are making top records are loving it right now. I'm loving it right now. I'm really excited about putting it out. It's called Gold Clip. Company's called Schwab Digital. And so it's essentially a clipper, this loudness processor which is this gain manipulation this compression without attack and release and then there's a high frequency contour softener called alchemy which kind of reduces the effects of clipping and there's like a box tone element to it which just kind of contours the high frequencies again and it just sounds classy it sounds amazing everybody's like it's singular there's nothing else like it it makes things sound big and expensive and I love it. That's, that's the feedback that I keep getting. So I'm really excited about putting it out hopefully soon, but it's, it's, you know, building something, a, a software device, you really have no idea how much technical detail goes into it. I have so much more respect for the tools that I use now that I've actually built one. Um, I probably overbuilt this one, I would say, but I'm happy, you know, I'm, I like to make things bulletproof from the start. So hopefully that's, that's where it'll start. When do you expect it'll be released? I'm shooting for May 30, yeah, May 31st, 2023. I just discovered this new little issue with um, this like hidden process that I, I put into the plugin that we now have to augment because um, it was causing a little bit of aliasing that I didn't I didn't like. And so I'm making this one last Hail Mary change that hopefully doesn't make me have to push it back another week or two, but it'll be May 31st or June 6th or the following week with sometime in that, that three week window, I'll definitely be done with it. You know, you have to set up everything from distribution, licensing, a store. Um, there's so much that goes into it. And then all that has to be integrated together too. So, you know, it's it's been a learning experience and I've really enjoyed it. I have actually two other two other plugins um, in development at this as well. I started two others, um, another like mastering device, which is a, um, it's basically 
a device that's used a lot in vinyl um, production. It's called a high frequency acceleration limiter. It's kind of like a essentially a deesser if you want to, you know, like make it as basic as possible. But it has adaptive like attack and release based off of actually adaptive attack release and hold times based off of how much gain reduction it's doing. And it's very like transparent sounding. So it basically like sets a high frequency limit, but maintains the shape of the high frequencies. It doesn't interject on uh, transients. So it maintains the transients. It just kind of sets a limit for them um, separate from the low frequencies. It's really beautiful sounding. I use it on a lot of my mastering from a hardware device. Um, so I'm going to make another software device, basically just pulling stuff that I use in my mastering and throwing it into plugin form because it's, what I kind of been inspiring to me as an engineer, like helped me get to the sound that I had in my head. Have you done any immersive audio at all? You know, I have not. I have mixed records in stereo and sent off stems for immersive audio. I'm in the process of building an Atmos room. Uh, um, I think I'm doing a 9.4, 9.1.4 room right next to me. I have not dug into it because developing this plugin has taken all of my focus. Um, but I'm excited about it. I think it's an interesting and exciting frontier. I'm hoping that it stays. Yeah, I think it will because it's it's an adaptive format. But you know, it's the the one thing that I that I dislike about it is like is that as an engineer, there's this high barrier of entry, you know, like theoretically you need like a room with 14 speakers in it, which is very not ideal from you know just an infrastructure standpoint you can do it in headphones but um you know i think to do it right you need to do it in speakers so um i'm in the process of of developing a room and but i have not not gone down that path as of yet yeah it's funny because i always think it's a a function of how much work you're now getting for it because what i've seen is a lot of people put in studios in very very elaborate studios in the anticipation they're going to get a lot of this Atmos work. Right. And if they do get any, they find it's not paying what they expected it to pay. So you have to be cautious when it comes to a financial outlay because, you know, again, you just don't know how it's going to go. Yeah. And I, you know, I've, from the people that I've talked with and like gone into their Atmos rooms, uh, you know, I almost consider it more of like a mastering process than I do a mixing process because what I've seen is they, you know, you're taking the stereo or you're taking the stems, stereo stems, or sometimes mono stems from a mix session with all of the processing on it. And it's more of a placement. You're more placing things around. Sure. You're filtering and, and doing some like level changes, but a lot of the creative, creative decisions have already been embedded into the stems and, um, you know, I find Atmos mixers doing Atmos mixes in like two, three hours. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if there was a tons of creative cycling in that process, I don't know if you could do it in two, three hours. And so I'm interested in it from like a technological perspective, but I don't think it's like, a. I don't know if I'm excited about the actual process. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to revisit this in the future after you get your room up. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I'll change my mind once I start doing it. <laughs> Just curious, what monitors are you using? Uh, I use the Key Audio 3s, which is a, um, you know, has like a cardioid bass playback where it only plays bass forward because there's speakers on every side of the, um, every side of the cabinet. And then I have a Trinov 
audio processor in between them. And so I run digitally out of Pro Tools or out of my computer, digitally into the Trinov and then digitally into the key threes. And so there's no chance of distortion anywhere because it's just a straight digital line right to the speakers and they're tuned in a way that kind of fits my ear. And um, it's remarkable. I can play at low levels. I can work for like 13 hours a day if I need to, because I don't need to like play at really loud levels to feel the low end because it's more with the key audio three with the directional bass. It's like more you hear the low end more than you have to feel it. It's really, really remarkable speaker, especially for like, you know, I'm working in a bedroom, you know, I'm not going to lie. I work in a bedroom. I have a house in West Philly and I converted two rooms of it into a studio. They're not huge rooms, but they're big enough. And, you know, so I implanted all this technology, these key audio threes with this directional bass and this Trinov, and it has served me well. It served me really well. I wouldn't be able to work without it. Last question, Ryan. What's the best piece of advice that somebody imparted to you or maybe you just learned along the way? I would say when you're starting out to like work laterally, like work with the people around you, because a lot of times we start out and we're, we're trying to reach up above us to like grow our careers. And we oftentimes like overlook the people that are brilliant right next to us that are maybe not are, are the next ones to get to the point that we're reaching to. And so I always, you know, tell my students to like find the people that are around you that are inspiring you either like as producers or engineers or artists and like do the work at that level. And that is the like foundational work that will uh, foster like a sustainable career because you're building re the, the relationships that are the next leaders in uh, the creative, you know, in, in the music industry. And so that is probably some of the best advice I've gotten. And that's, that was the launch of my career. You know, it was like making records with my friends that eventually turned into a career. I did, it was a hobby. It was just something I did because I had to do it. You can find out more about Ryan at ryanschwab.com. That's Ryan, R-Y-A-N, Schwab, S-C-H-W-A-B-E.com. And you can find out more about his gold clip plugin at schwabdigital.com. That's S-C-H-W-A-B-E, digital, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 